Hi, this is Bill Jensen, author of The Day Tomorrow Said No, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Bill Jensen. Bill Jensen is founder of the Jensen Group and a leading speaker and consultant around the the future of work. He's globally ranked as a top five thought leader in the future of work, transformational leadership, and digital transformation. He brings over 35 years experience and research in solving leaders' toughest challenges to his work and creates a new path to hope, redemption, and more amazing futures for us all. He lives in Morristown, New Jersey, and is here to talk about his book, The Day Tomorrow Said No, the discovery that forever changed the future and how we work. Welcome, Bill. Bill, back at you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell me, when you were growing up, Bill, who's somebody who influenced and inspired you? I grew up in a very small town on Long Island. Now, Long Island is known for, especially in public schools, large school districts. We had the smallest, one of the smallest school districts on Long Island. My sisters and my kids, nephews and nieces, they have graduating classes of hundreds and hundreds. My graduating class was 145. And our school was 1,000 kids, 7th through 12th grade. So it was relatively small for Long Island. And I played on football. And I was not large. I was 5'10", maybe at that time 170 pounds. I was an all-star linebacker. But the only reason I was an all-star linebacker was my coach, Tom Forbes. He was an amazing man. He took what he taught us all the value of teamwork. He taught us that because we were such a small school, we could not farm as many guys as they, all the other schools had at least twice as many guys to pull from. So we were dealing with the smallest and the runtiest and the lightest of all football players. We were all pretty good, but he put us together in, in great teams and he showed us the value of teamwork that 11 people or 22 people on either side can accomplish amazing things if they do it together. Of how he would either speak to you or tell you to think about your teammates that stands out today because now you've had the benefit of perspective. He pulled me aside and I was a rather small linebacker. He said, Bill, you've got a whole bunch of other guys there. Don't try and tackle this guy all at once. Hold him up and wait for other teammates to come. And everything was designed around whatever play, whether it was offense or defense. He taught us the power of three or four or five guys working together rather than just one. Everything, there were all stars on our team, but everything was designed about the power of each individual working together as a group. That's really interesting. What a perspective that coach had at that time and imbued in each of you who participated about how to do things and get things done with others. Now, going ahead, thinking about maybe early in your career, do you remember a time when you were about to make a decision or were stepping up to supervise or maybe even lead a team? And some of, of coach's words came back to you where coach Forbes 
had given you instructions and now you're thinking about it a little bit differently because of your years on the football team? It's hard to pick one incident because it's been my whole career. It's basically you can solve anything together with a bunch of people that have a common vision, shared values, but different. it's diversity is also important. So it's okay. I'm usually known as the PETA, the pain in the ass adventurer who wants to say, what if we do it differently? But I also need people who facilitate groups differently than I do. I also need sub- deep subject matter experts. I also need big thinkers. I need small thinkers. I need somebody focused on the deadline. I need somebody focused on the creativity. My entire career, it's taught me the value of amazing teamwork with diverse people and value everybody's diverse views, talents, and approaches. And I may be strong at A, B, and C, but there's an entire alphabet. I'm not strong at everything. Who do I can who can I flesh out the team with that's strong at QRS or XYZ? So it's really putting the team together that Tom Forbes taught me. What's so interesting, Bill, is that your experience and your work has really been focused on simplicity. And most people on the outset would say that adding people to a team to solve a problem creates complexity. And it's all about how it's done, how it's done correctly and the intent and approach that it requires so that you can get those streamlined results. Is that an accurate summation or essence of what you're able to accomplish? Absolutely, Bill. It's a perfect summary. And I would add one more thing that I've since learned throughout my career. The essence of simplicity is empathy, your ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Now that relates to Coach Forbes and high school. That relates. It's the ability to really understand your teammates, the people around you, and put yourself in their shoes. So how I help companies make things simpler, when they come to me, mostly it's help me streamline processes, help me re-engineer things so I take 10 steps and make them three. Help me take, if it costs $100 to do something, I want to do it for $3. Fewer people, more technology. Yes, all of those are valid. But the main thing is whoever is on your team, put yourself in their shoes. So for example, Bill, years ago, I worked for a large manufacturer in South Carolina. And the guy, the plant manager's name was Mark. And Mark called me in. It was, he was part of the world-class conglomerate that made batteries. And we really had to transform this plant. And he asked for my help. And I talked. I went around and I talked to everybody in the plant. And there was a lot of technical, technological problems. There were a lot of process problems. There was a lot of machinery that needed fixing. But I went back to this the plant manager and I said, here's the one thing you need to do first, paint bathrooms. And he goes, to the staff, to the crews, the work crews, the bathrooms were disgusting. And it showed you don't respect us. You don't care about our needs. Paint the bathrooms to show us you care about us. It wasn't the machinery. It wasn't the process. It was the cheapest fix that started the ball rolling ever. It was a few gallons of paint, a little scrubbing, a few things. And I've experienced this all around the world. I was working out of the Netherlands with a world-class electronics company, and they were having problems in their call center. And they, they, they had low morale. And help us find what the problem is with morale. Do they need more pay? Do they need this? What do they, what do they need to that I can raise? How do I engage them better so I can raise their morale? And I interviewed them. Empathy. Again, I want to keep coming back 
Bill, to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And on TV, you might recognize what the script I'm using. It's called a, a TV show called Undercover Boss. And they discover, oh my God, this is an amazing worker, but she never, she's homeless. She's doing this. She's doing that. She's got problems. If I just care about her, she'll work even better. So this electronics firm, I went to their call centers and I asked, what's going on? What's Why is morale so low? The fix ended up being about $13 a person. It was wow. the headsets. It was the headsets. They couldn't hear the customers that were calling in. They were making errors. They were doing. They just had poor quality headsets. It's such a simple fix. Why is it that you think that they weren't able to communicate that in a way that management could hear and take action on? It's ultimately management's fault and responsibility. I know we're speaking to a lot of small business owners right now and leaders. We don't put that on the staff or the workers' shoulders. We put it on our own. Most of us, and I've also have trained a lot of people how to communicate communicate more simply. Most of it was when we communicate, we listen to respond. We listen to get our agenda across. We listen to correct the other person. We rarely listen for what the other person is really telling us that we may not want to hear. So again, it's the essence of simplicity is listening from that other person's perspective, not what you have to shove down their throats. And that's, it really is that simple. In a communications course I took many years ago, somebody quipped that the listener in many business conversations is simply the person who takes a breath first. Yes, absolutely. And keeps their ears open. Most of the time, people are telling you things you don't want to hear. I would, I've been in this business, I've been consulting for 35 years now. I would say the biggest thing I've learned about consulting in general, why I help small business owners, medium business owners, large business owners, if you just listen to this, you wouldn't need people like me. The biggest thing that I do in consulting is the client tells me what they want. I keep asking questions until I discover what they need. Good consulting, good coaching, good mentoring, good leadership is under learning the difference between what your client or your workforce or your manager or your company needs and what you think they want or yeah. what you want to give to them. It's listening for people's needs. So true. Now, the idea of empathy and putting ourselves in other people's shoes is essential. It is absolutely essential to understanding the parable book, The Day Tomorrow Said No, that you wrote. And you wrote this as a parable, but it's with a big message. You're really talking about how the future has been changed, but it's really a change that we brought on. It's a change that is a new normal because it's the normal that we really can't go back to a previous normal. We've got to establish new normals or never again think of a normal future. Help bring it down to something more concrete terms. What is it that inspired you to write this book? And what is the message you want people to take away from it so that they're thinking differently and in particular incorporating that empathy that we began our discussion on? What inspired, well, first, every re every book I've done is research-based. And I've interviewed and surveyed over 20, 25 years, over a million people around the globe. And I try to ask questions that nobody else is asking. So the inspiration inspiration for the book was a source of pain and a problem. And the question that I asked that's built into the book, every story, parable, every story has what's called an inciting incident, the thing that starts the, the story in motion. The inciting incident in this book is the answer to the question I asked thousands of people around the globe, can you achieve your dreams 
where you currently work. Now, small business owners, if you have a staff of 10, 20, 30, 100, what percentage do you think would answer, yes, I work for this deli, I work for this small manufacturing company, whatever it is, can I achieve my dreams here? Now, Bill, I know you've read the book, but before before you got there to the answer, what would you have guessed the percentage if it's from zero to 100% would say, yes, I can achieve my dreams where I currently work? What percentage would you have guessed? I would have guessed much higher than what I know it actually is. Exactly. <laughs> when I ask that question to most people, their first guess is, well, I know this is terrible, but maybe 20, 30% would say yes. No, it's 9.8%. 10% said yes. So that's nine out of everybody, nine out of every 10 workers at our companies are saying to us, I can work for my boss and I, I can start companies, customers, but I can't achieve my dreams. I need to do that either in my hobbies at home or I need to go work for somewhere else. So the inciting incident, what sparked this is the lack of our ability. We are all, we all in inherent who we are. We have dreams. We want to do things that matter. And nine out of every 10 of us work in places where we can't achieve. We can achieve a manufacturer's dreams or a software developer's dreams or a deli owner's dreams, but we can't necessarily achieve our dreams. And that was started the book going. And I've found, and I bet you have too, that many people aren't even clear on what their dreams are. You could ask about whether they feel fulfilled and they'll give you a very direct answer to that, but many of them can't articulate what is it that they want to accomplish with their lives, what their mission is, how they see themselves and orient themselves towards working towards a life dream. Have you found that as well? And how do you take that into account with this question? Yes, I found that the book that I wrote before this was called Future Strong, and it was looking at the qualities for people who were what I called future strong, able to deal with a life and, and a work environment of total disruption constantly. And one of the qualities, the first quality was inner knowingness. And through the research for that book, I came up with what I called the 80-20 rule of, of inner knowingness. 80% of us think we know who we are, but don't. And the, those of us that are in that category, we've only done about 20% of the work. Yeah, the biggest challenge is what I, when I coach, whether it's executives, senior or mid-managers or line employees, I always begin with who you are. And I ask them, who do you want to be when you grow up? How do you want to be? What do you want to, how do you want to achieve success? What is the legacy you want to leave behind? When I ask, when I'm behind closed doors coaching owners of small companies, I ask them, tell me what the legacy you want to leave behind three years from now is. Now, there's two things to that, Bill. One is legacy. The other is three years. Why is pick three years? It comes from a TED talk of a couple of years ago that estimated the amount of change all of us are going to experience is greater in the next 20 years than in the past 2000. And when I did that slide originally in front of groups, they scoffed. Oh, that's that's big. look at 2020, guys. We just experienced a lifetime's worth of change in one year. One year. <laughs> one year. So that's what happens. So I, for depending on the amount of tech you use, the the average person is going to experience a lifetime's worth of change from here on out, anywhere between one and three years. 
Now, you'll say that's impossible, but that's the way it's going to happen. COVID, without the pandemic, it's going to repeat itself. We're going to have that amount of change. So when I say three years, you don't have to die to think about your legacy, which is most, what most people think of when I say that word. It's what are they going to say around my epitaph and around my graveside? It's the, le- the legacy is the impact you have on people. So when I'm coaching business owners and senior execs, the first thing I start is not what's your business plan, what's your, what are your receipts? What's your strategy? I start with, what do you want your legacy to be? I start with personal, and then I work backwards from there. Bill, it's really insightful. And I, I think that part of the idea of legacy isn't, I want to achieve this certain level of market penetration, or I want to introduce this many products. Those are all end results. The real legacy that I take from my perspective is that the kind of relationships that people build, because that's how you're going to be remembered. The quality of the relationships that we have with our clients, our coworkers, our suppliers, our outside consultants, that's what really makes the difference, especially in our families. All of that is what makes the difference. And the, the real shocking part of that is it's not something that's done at the end of your life. It's done through every hour of our lives. Every single hour, every single minute of every day. And actually, I meant you mentioned my bio says Morristown. I've recently moved out of there. I'm living on Long, back on Long Island for at least a few months with my brother-in-law and sister because my sister a couple of years ago had suffered a brain aneurysm and she's partially paralyzed and can't speak. So I moved in with my brother-in-law and my sister to help with to help with my sister's care. Now, ultimately, being a, besides being married, having a son, one of my one of the reasons for being here is not my business, it's my sister. So at the end of our lives, it's going to be, as you said, Bill, how we affected everybody's lives around us. And by the way, that's how I started. Tom Forbes is somebody that I remember, what am I, 40, 50 years out of high school now? Not quite. 45 years out of high school. Tom Forbes is still a major influence in my life because he affected me. It wasn't me as a football player. It was me as a person. Showing that level of caring, which is something that everyone listening to this has people who report to them, who rely on them, who count on them in order to deliver and contribute. And it's something that we're in a position now where, like you say in the book, we need to rethink how we work with each other and how we establish those relationships. And you talk about needing to redefine the roles. And you say that one of the easiest ways in your style, of course, Bill, is to simplify it down into three different roles, believers, breakers, and builders. Can you talk about how we ought to be using those as a lens to reimagine how we contribute to our work and fulfill our responsibilities? Sure. Do you mind if I do the context of the book first so they know how I can- Take a step, please. So the inciting incident behind the book was essentially tomorrow is running out of dreams. So I created a story with three characters, today, present, tomorrow, the future, and little one, who is the workforce of the future. And the book, title of the book, The Day Tomorrow Said No, looked at essentially only 10% of us can achieve our dream. And she said, we're running out of dreams. We can't support a future. There's no, there's going to be no dreams to build a future on. So she said, no, future has always happened because tomorrow hands off to today. And that's how we get the future. She said, no. And today, tomorrow, and little one, it's their journey. And they go on this journey about asking the billions of people who are out there, how do we solve this? How do we get people more engaged in achieving their dreams? And the two two of the characters that are the biggest helpers, tomorrow and little one, they discovered through all their inter- interviews around the world that there are only three roles. It doesn't matter whether you're in manufacturing, software development, pharmaceuticals, big companies, little companies, there are only three jobs. That's it. All of 
us and accompany those jobs. And one is believer, being the cheerleader, being the one who believes in the dream, who keeps it going, who keeps it alive. But also, believers are the ones that speak up. For example, climate change, Greta Thunberg, a teenager in Sweden and up north where it's very cold and they're worried about all of that. She's the believer who's speaking the truth that power does not want to hear. So believers are both the cheerleaders and the ones that speak the truth to power that says the emperor is wearing no clothes. So those are believers. Breakers are the Steve Jobs or the Elon Musk or the innovators of the world that, cre- that see that things are broken and break them in intentionally and create something new. They want to put, in Steve Jobs' terms, a ding in the universe. They want to create new possibilities. The breakers are the ones that that break the mold and say, we can do it completely differently. And the builders are the ones that create the, the systems that facilitate those new inventions. Big systems like climate change, the economics, poverty, water, but also little systems, how a, how a company operates, how a team operates processes and tools. So every single job on the planet is one or more. And by the way, you can be more than just one, but one or more of those three roles. Interesting. When you present that to companies, what are some of the first questions that they ask in terms of rethinking this and using it as language to communicate with everyone from new hires to existing colleagues about how these identities affect how they perform their roles. Before we get to them as helpers, let's go to the initial real reactions. That can't be right. Three jobs. Okay, let's walk through it. Bill, you're in charge of this manufacturing company. What do you do? And how do you do it? They go, oh, yeah, I guess that is me. They discover them. And I'm a combination of this and this. Okay, but you're 60% 60% one and 40% the other. Oh, okay. So it does hold true. So the, so the first reaction is too simple. Jump in there. What you're doing is, is you're getting, when you introduce this idea, you get a lot of pushback. You get a lot of skepticism from people who are listening to it because they can't accept or identify or relate to every single job in a very complex business being able to be broken down into one or some combination of these three roles, isn't that? Exactly. Exactly. My job is much more complex than that. I can't write. But then once they have have that aha, and you can't do anything until they have that aha. But once they do have that aha, it's, oh, I've got a bunch of my innovation quotient is too low because I'm not hiring enough breakers. I'm not, I don't have enough courageous people who say no to the system, who break the rules. I want a bunch of yes people who keep the good things that I built going. Oh, I need more innovators that are telling me the emperor has no clothes. I need to create an environment where they can tell me that. Oh, I'm builders. I'm very good at building systems, but I'm not very good at creating the innovation, allowing the breakers to attend the rules to break the systems. Because once systems mean efficiency and effectiveness, that means profitability. I can't have those breakers building, stopping the building of what we did. So it creates ahas going back, circling back to common themes, empathy and diversity of teams. This is the simplest form of a diverse team. You need all three. You can't 
create a great organization with one or two. You need all three diverse in diversity working with each other and complementing and contradicting each other. Because their roles and their intents do contradict one another, how do you offer them a process or vehicle for resolving some of the inevitable conflicts that will arise? Bill, you just told me you want your legacy to be three years from now X, Y, Z. Okay, so what do you think we should do about to achieve your legacy? What I do is rather than get all consultant, geeky, processy about what we got to do, I'm formally trained in change management, rather than get all change managing. Bill, what do you want to achieve three years from now? You're already certified and trained in geekiness. But what I <laughs> do is I bring them back to their dream. Yeah. And what are you willing to put in place to achieve your legacy? And once they understand these different roles, you then probably help them say, let's take, a, let's just look at it from a different perspective. Let's move from the believer who crafted the vision to a builder who has to put it together. What right. has to happen? Exactly. Now, I want to be fair to every business leader out there that is still scoffing and going to get me three roles. This is mainly a facilitation tool and a coaching tool. I'm not expecting the world to reinvent its job descriptions according to just breaker, builder, or believer. It helps us see both the commonality of the different people in the room, what they all have in common, and the diversity in the room and the diversity of thinking we need in the room. There's a, a methodology out there currently called design thinking. And whether you're working with stakeholders who are customers or the marketplace or manufacturing or service or your own employees, design thinking allows you to build prototypes for, oh, we have a dozen different kinds of people that we need to serve. And this is what we need to put in place for that. Believer, the three Bs are just simplified version of prototyping your stakeholders and recognizing you have to have diversity. So it's a coaching and facilitation and training and development tool. I'm not proposing that we restructure 8 billion jobs around the globe just down to three. Too bad because we come up with just red, blue, and green shirts and yeah. really have it. I'm not that much of a simpleton. <laughs> Bill, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Fire away, sir. All right. So at the beginning of the interview, we talked about who's somebody who influenced and inspired you, and you talked about Coach Forbes. When you were a teenager, Bill, what's a song that you loved? Stairway to Heaven. How does that go? Bye, stairway to heaven. By the way, I was at Madison Square Garden the very first time, the first time Stairway to Heaven was live was in the UK, but the first time it was live in the US was Madison Square Garden, New York City. Wow. Wow. And I was there. So Born to be Wild Steppenwolf would be my second answer. Completely different vibe, Born to yeah. be Wild. Yet, I see them both. I definitely get that. Bill, you have a message and a way of thinking that brings people together around effective work. What do you use in order to get your word out each week about your mission to those that need it. Blog posts, podcasts, and being interviewed like this. Do you have a tool or system you use to help you stay on track and productive? Believe it or not, yes, I've got a whole bunch of tech tools, but my the biggest one, you one use. Well, I use all the tools, but yeah. the one that keeps me focused versus tasks at hand is a yellow pad with each week to-dos, one column that's schedule-oriented. This has to happen on Monday. This has to happen Tuesday. Another column that's urgent. Simple yellow pad. What would you say is the best business advice you ever received? The same as personal advice. Be yourself.
be true to yourself. What would you say in the last, what's the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? I re- my Repairing my bike was 115 bucks recently. I'm not repair, just uh, spring, spring training. And I love biking. It calms me. It excites me. It keeps me focused. It keeps me looking around. It's the right speed for me. I can go past things quickly, but not too quickly. I can see things. And my at the bottom of my resume, when I put it out as a speaker, the very last line that I insist, if nobody reads anything about else about me, read my, my, goal, my life's goal. And my life's goal is to bicycle around the globe via breweries. Excellent. It's, it's more about the reward at the end than the actual biking, but I love biking. And the spring tune-up was about 115 bucks. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Stop thinking that I control more than I really control. I don't control anything. I control my reactions to things, but I don't control other people's hiring process, their budget, their approval process. There's very little in life we control. A lot of things, if COVID didn't teach us anything or taught us anything, it would be that there's very little we have control except how we react to every situation. So true. And wise words to live by to stay more empathetic as well as feeling more resourceful ourselves so we don't feel out of control expecting to be in control of things that we don't have any measure of control over. Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've shared great experiences, your wisdom, starting with the football coach who made such an impact on your life. You talked about Mark, who could make a simple change in the South Carolina manufacturing plant by painting the bathroom, not because they needed painting, but as a gesture of respect for those that work there. And the importance of listening, listening not to respond, but listening to really hear and understand the position, needs, and issues that the person speaking is conveying. You talked about the startling statistic in answer to your question as to whether people could achieve their dreams by working in their current position, that nine of people wouldn't be able to do that. And how important it is for you as an external executive and business coach to start with the personal before you go on to the business related metrics that people want to accomplish and how every manager and leader and supervisor and coworker can also provide that level of asking and helping other people clarify things that are important to them about what they want to accomplish with their lives. We talked about design thinking and how using these three tools of the believer, the builder, and the breaker helps people understand and think about it in different ways so that you can imagine different scenarios and start to use this common language within their business as a facilitation tool for arriving at shared decisions that everyone understands. So for these and so many more reasons, Bill, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, Bill, before we say goodbye for now, where's a website that people could go to learn more about the work that you do? You can go to the book's website, Tomorrow Said Yes. And there's something important about that site. It's And that ends with y.es. There's no .com at the end. Tomorrow Said Yes. If you go there, you can get the book for free. So it's Tomorrow Said Y.es. Yes. We're going to make it super easy for people to follow that because we're going to link to it in the show notes, as well as to your other websites and links to buy your books so that everyone listening can go to those show notes and find out more about what you're up to and the work that you've created to make the world a simpler, better place. So Bill Jensen, author of The Day Tomorrow Said No, I want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much, Bill. 
Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.